The sermon texts for this morning's message are found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, and Romans 12, verse 12, beginning in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, reading through verse 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And in Romans chapter 12, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that we would feel deep in our bones that Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. There isn't anything greater for hope to be built on than that. So come, I pray. Give us your solid sense of assurance and certainty in this service. Lord, we need you. We can't hope without you. We can't see our inheritance without you. We can't know power without you. We can't be constant in prayer without you. So please come and help us. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. The phrase in uh, verse 12 of Romans 12 that we left out last time was the one at the end of the verse. So let's go there. Romans 12, 12. It says at the end of the verse, be constant in prayer. I passed over that last time because I knew that this would be the beginning of prayer week, and it is. And my hope is that this message and this week of focus on prayer will put a new confidence and a new hope in you that prayer is the pathway to joy and hope and endurance in tribulation and love and glory to Christ. And I hope that therefore you will resolve to pray in new ways with your family and your church and alone in your closet. So here's where we're going. First, what does it mean to be constant in prayer? Second, What's the connection between that and the rest of verse 12? Hope, joy, endurance, love. 
And third, let's look at an illustration of it from Ephesians 1. So, first, what does it mean to be constant in prayer? It does not mean that you have to pray out loud or explicitly in your head every minute of the day. I don't think that's even possible if you have a job. It means persevere in the habit of prayer, stay in the habit of prayer, be devoted to the habit of prayer, don't give up, don't slack off, be habitual. It's the opposite of random, occasional, sporadic, intermittent. Paul is calling all believers here to be regular and habitual and recurring and disciplined in your life of prayer. Treat prayer, in this coming year, treat prayer the way you treat eating and sleeping and doing your job. Don't be hit and miss about it. Don't assume it will fill in the cracks. It won't fill in the cracks. Other things will fill in the cracks. It will drop through the cracks. Dealing with God in prayer deserves more than a dial-up as you have occasion. Now, qualify that. Of course, God loves to be dialed up in the cracks. He is available all the time. He loves to give you help in the moment you need it. Those kinds of calls are totally appropriate. But this is the point. All relationships suffer for lack of focused attention. If you only do the dial-up with your wife, the relationship's going to suffer. If you only do the occasional hit-and-miss random thing with a person, that will not be a long-term significant relationship. And so it is with God. He deserves more than random Attention. And so give him in this year constancy in prayer. Ask for the help you need and resolve to pray and plan the time to do it. I brought along my book because pages 155 to 173 give all the practical help I know how to give to a new year of praying, finding a time, finding a place, finding a method, finding helps. How do you do it? And there are 20 pages, 155 to 173, that give every practical hint I know. So that's the rest of the message there. Point number two. Now we've seen something of what constancy in prayer is. How does it relate to the rest of verse 12? Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And we added to that list, you remember last time, that the theme of the uh, paragraph is love. And therefore, all of that leading toward a life of sacrificial love for other people. How does that all fit together? Let's get the flow that I developed last time. Number one, tribulation is the normal environment 
in which we live. It's the soil in which we are planted. Job 5, 7. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. That didn't change when Jesus came into the world. It got worse. Job 14.1, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. And I said last time, if that isn't your experience now, it will be. It's just around the corner. If this is a bright day for you, the dark day is around the corner. If this is a dark day for you, a brighter day is coming. The life in which we live in fallen planet Earth is tribulation. Second thing I said was, Christ broke into this, he put it on like a garment, and then he killed it when he died, and he rose from the dead triumphant over sin, Satan, sickness, and sabotage. And if you put yourself in his hands and build him as your hope, he's the rock-solid, blood-bought hope, then you will enjoy freedom from sin, freedom from Satan, freedom from sickness, and freedom from sabotage partially now and perfectly later. Is that clear? It is bought for you perfectly. You will have it. You enjoy it in measure now. How much measure? We ask for a lot. And God gives us what's good for us. And someday, it's all going to be given perfectly. Total freedom from sin, total freedom from Satan, total freedom from sickness, total freedom from sabotage. Home, it's over. And all tears are wiped away and all joy forever and ever. And we just ask for down payments in this age now, and they come in God's gracious measure. That's the second thing we said. Tribulation, hope in it. Third, Therefore, we can rejoice in tribulation because we have hope. We rejoice in hope in the middle of our tribulation. That's why it says there in verse 12, rejoice in hope. At Bethlehem, we got this thing called Christian hedonism. The flavor of Christian hedonism is sorrowful, but always rejoicing. That's the flag we wave again and again. Second Corinthians 6.10. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful. How can it not be when there are earthquakes and floods and famine and sickness of all kinds and marital difficulties and children difficulties and every kind of imaginable stress in the world? How can joy be any other kind of joy than sorrowful yet always rejoicing? And oh, how I pray that you would learn that secret, that you don't have to have the brightest day to be a deeply joyful person. In fact, If you must, you probably don't know where your joy is founded. It's founded in the hope, the blood-bought hope. Isn't it amazing, I don't know if you noticed during the Christmas season, that so many of our hymns, Christmas carols included, are written by people who've suffered, and the hymns are about joy in suffering. give you one example, and I just saw this when I was praying with David Livingston on Friday morning. It was so rich to see it together. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Remember the first verse? It's utterly paradoxical. I'll read it to you. 
O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Now that's picturing the church as the new and fresh true Israel. We're here. We're in exile. Earth is not our home. Heaven is our home. So come, O Emmanuel, come. It's asking on the basis of the first coming, come as a second coming. Come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice! Rejoice! Emmanuel shall come. Well, which is it? Mourning in lowly exile here or rejoicing because he's coming. It's both. And you know it's both. This, the seasoned Christian, not the new bright Christian who hasn't tasted very much, but the seasoned, tried Christian knows that's life. Mourning in lowly exile here, he's coming and I'm going to be happy in and through this misery. It's the only way it can survive. And the fourth thing after tribulation, blood-bought hope and joy is endurance. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient or enduring in tribulation. And the key to that is joy. And we saw it from Hebrews 12, too, where the Lord, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. So love flows from endurance, which flows from joy, which flows from hope, which flows from Christ. And now we're at last point three, the main point. How does prayer relate to all of that? This is prayer week. This is the beginning of prayer week. My heart's desire is that you would look. We got prayer Meetings every morning this week. We have prayer meetings every noon this week. And you've got a family or friends. And God is calling us here at the end of the year to set a pace for the new year and pray together. So I'm asking, if the Christian life is tribulation, blood-bought hope, joy based on it, Endurance is the fruit and love overflowing. What's prayer got to do with all that? And now we go to Ephesians chapter 1. So I hope you will turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 1. This is a prayer. Oh, that you would read, indeed memorize the prayers of the Apostle Paul. And I, I just get goosebumps when I think that the Bible is inspired. Because... When you read a prayer that's inspired, you know this is the way to pray. You don't have to say, well, Piper says it's the way to pray. Piper doesn't say it's a way to pray. God says it's a way to pray. This is what we're supposed to pray for. This is the way we pray. God's word is praying to God here. And so let's get in it, put it on, and do this kind of praying for ourselves and for our families and our church and the nation's. Ephesians 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease. Now, that's this constancy idea, right? Be constant in prayer. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
So, he's got Christians in view. I've heard of your faith. I've heard of your love, Bethlehem. Therefore, I don't think you're beyond the need for prayer. For you I pray daily. And I mean that me, for you, daily. And for this staff, by name, daily. With thanksgiving, there's always reason to give thanks. Now, what does he ask for when he prays without ceasing for the church? First, there is a single request in verse 17. And then there are three specific requests in verses 18 and 19. Let's look at the first general single request that we should pray for ourselves, our families, and our church, and our nation. That God, I'm praying, verse 17, that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of of him. The deepest need that you have is to know God. The deepest need is not health. The deepest need is not a job or a marriage. The deepest need of your soul is to know God. That's the first thing he asks for. Oh God, he says, may you give a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of God. Oh, that the people would know you. So I'm going to ask you now, do you know him? I don't mean know about him merely. You've got to know about him to know him. But to know about him, you can. the devil knows more than you'll ever know about God in this world. That won't suffice. We must know him. Know Him, know Him, know Him. Or better, just to ask it more realistically, are you growing in knowing Him? The prayer that Chuck prayed from Colossians, do you hear that phrase? Growing in the knowledge of God. Growing, increasing in the knowledge of God. So I just ask you, here you are at the end of the year, do you know Him better in January of this year? And are you bent on coming to the end of next year? I'm going to know him so much better. I'm going to go deep with this God. I'm going to know him as creator. I'm going to know him as redeemer. I'm going to know him as judge. I'm going to know him as friend. I'm going to really get to know God in this coming year. That's what he's praying for. Do you ask God for that? You should. Without ceasing. Specifically, how does that happen? He prays for a very specific thing here. A spirit of wisdom and revelation. Got a little S in my Bible on the front of spirit. Hmm. Both Greek and English. You can't tell whether spirit is Holy Spirit or your spirit. My inclination here is to see this as God's spirit awakening my spirit. 
God is a spirit. God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, is a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in that he gave it to the apostles and prophets. And he moves into me with himself, fills me, awakens my spirit. And when I call my spirit a spirit of wisdom and a revelation, I mean that my spirit is now able to taste and see and discern the depth, the sweetness, the power, the preciousness of the wisdom and the revelation of God. So when I ask you, do you have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation? I don't mean, are you able to predict the future or something like that? I mean, do you have a spirit that when you hear a sermon that is saturated with the Bible or when you read the Bible, does your spirit resonate with the Bible? Does your spirit say, oh, I love the wisdom of God. Oh, how sweet is the revelation of God. Oh, how precious is this. How glorious, how infinitely more valuable is what I am seeing right now in the Bible than everything else in the world. If that's not the way you're responding, you need to pray this prayer. Please, Lord. Give me a spirit of wisdom and of revelation so that I'm not so interested in television and computers and games and family and work and stuff and just that. Please, Lord, don't leave me to myself. Awaken in me a spirit that can taste and see that you are good in your wisdom and good in your self-revelation. That's what Paul wanted for these people. Isn't it interesting he's praying that for Christians? I'm so thankful he's praying it for Christians. Because if you didn't know that, you might think, well, that's that's the problem of an unbeliever. They don't have any desire for God. They don't have any spirit of wisdom and of revelation so that when they read wisdom, they feel it is wise. And when they read revelation, they see God and love God and delight in God and are satisfied in God. You think, well, that's what you've got to pray for unbelievers, which it is. But you've got to pray it for you. Life is hard. I, I called joy last time. Remember an embattled joy? So, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And now we move to the three specifics. And this is why I chose this text, because it relates to hope, which relates to Romans twelve twelve, and relates to joy and endurance and tribulation. So here we are at the hope issue. And isn't it interesting that hope assumes a dominant role in this prayer? But before I give you the three specifics on hope, notice the phrase eyes of the heart in verse 18. I think what he's saying when he's, he prays that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to know these three things that he's going to mention, that he's praying almost identically the same thing as God give him a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. I don't think there's much difference between having hearts that can see, hearts that can see, and having a spirit of wisdom and of revelation that you perceive and embrace and see. It's just two ways of talking about the, the same Thing, but I want you to see this. Do you know anything about the eyes of your heart? Which is a reality that, that the world does not know what we're talking about here. But Christians ought to know this reality. What are the eyes of your heart? What are they? What do they see? The glory of God and the spiritual beauty of Jesus Christ are not seen with the eyes of the head. Not even if he were here would they be seen with the eyes of the head. Judas saw him and saw him not. 
Pilate saw him and didn't see him. The eyes of the head fail us. What are these eyes of the heart? The eyes of the heart are when the eyes of the head read the Bible or see the living Christ back when he was alive at the resurrection, or we will see him. And here there is a spiritual apprehension or perception or tasting of his glory and worth and value. That's the difference. The heavens are telling the glory of God. And everybody sees it all day long and they do not see it. Why? Because the eyes of their heart are not enlightened with the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. That's a gift. You cannot make that happen. You know, it's really sad to talk to unbelievers or maybe even some professing believers who say, I get along just fine without prayer. What's the big deal? I'm making it just fine in life and I don't pray. I think it's a waste of time. They don't know what they're missing. They don't know what they need. What they need is the ability to see and savor the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And since they don't see it and savor it, they don't feel any need for it. Conversion is a gift of God. It's, a, it's the quickening of the heart to suddenly feel, I have a need, and there's a Savior, and He starts not any longer to look like a stumbling block and foolishness, but like the wisdom and the power of God. The cross ceases to be silly, and it becomes my power, my life, my value, my everything. That's what happens when you have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of God. So if, if you don't know well the eyes of your own heart, if you don't know that reality, if you don't even think in those categories like, I have a heart, I have a spirit, I have a soul, it has perceiving faculties, just like my physical body has perceiving faculties. Would you cultivate those, Lord? That's what he's praying. Would you cultivate those? Would you awaken those? Would you grant me not to come to the Bible and see nothing this year? Help me to come and have my eyes, the eyes of my heart open, a spirit of wisdom and revelation resting on me so that when I see what has been revealed and the wisdom of God, I am thrilled with it. It becomes my treasure, my light, my life. Now, I think we're ready for hope. Verse 18, middle of the verse. Here are the three things that he prays for that the eye of the heart would see. What should you see as you pray? One, what is the hope to which he has called you? Second, end of verse 18. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? I think the hope and the inheritance are virtually the same. In the saints. Third, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those who believe? And the reason power is included in this hope 
trilogy is because without divine power, you won't get there. You nailed it, Sherrard, when you quoted 1 Peter 1, a hope laid up for us in heaven, kept for us in heaven, unfading, undefiled, for us who are being kept by the power of God. It's exactly the same idea here. You got an inheritance out there and you got a sinner here wobbling all over the place, ready to fall off the path. How are you going to get there? Not in your strength, I promise you. You will not make it to your inheritance. The perseverance of the saints, the preservation of your faith is God's powerful work in your life. And oh, how thankful we should be for that third prayer. Do you pray it for yourself? There's not anything I pray more for me than that. Does that sound strange to you? I pray, keep me a Christian more than I pray anything. Is that odd? Don't you believe in eternal security? Yes, in answer to prayer. The means of grace by which we persevere to the end and, in, and obtain our inheritance is prayer. Grant me, O oh God, a spirit of wisdom and revelation. I'm a pastor. Don't let me come to my Bible and see nothing. Please don't let me become cool or lukewarm or less cold and indifferent. Don't let me start to be fascinated with hobbies so that I spend all my time, all my discretionary time on my hobbies. And, oh, this ministry thing is it's becoming so boring. Don't let it happen. Oh, God, please let the ministry be my life. Let Christ be my life. You have battles like I have battles? How do you pray? How do you fight if you don't fight in prayer? This is the key to hope. And now I'm ready to draw it all together. Hope, I believe, um, prayer, I believe, at the end of verse 12, is intended to cut an arc back up to the beginning of verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer for hope. That's what Ephesians 1 taught me. Verse 12 wouldn't say that explicitly, but Ephesians 1 says it explicitly. When you get on your face and pray to God, pray that you would know him. Pray that you would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that when you come to the Bible, it would live. Pray for the eyes of your heart to be illumined that you may See your hope, see your inheritance, see the power that's keeping you from those. And when that answer is given and you have hope, now we're back at verse 12. Chapter 12. So let me sum it up like this. I'm going to close with questions. I hope you give the answer before I do, because I will give the answer. Question number one. How in this coming year are you going to love people who are hard to love? How are you going to let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds of love and give glory to your Father in heaven? Answer, through patient endurance in tribulation. Because you will walk through tribulation in this coming year. And the big question is, now number two. How are you going to have the strength to endure? 
if you're going to love people with the strength of endurance through tribulation, where are you going to get this strength to endure? There are going to be some really rough times this year. Are you going to withdraw into yourself and simply nurse your pain and love that can wait for a brighter day? I will love somebody when I feel better and when my marriage is better and my job is better and this church is better. Then I'll start loving people. The joy of the Lord is our strength. I mean, you do know that that song we sang is from the Bible, don't you? That's Nehemiah 8.10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah 8.10. The joy of the Lord is your endurance. That's my second question. How are you going to maintain endurance to love? Answer, joy. Third question. How are you going to sustain joy in tribulation? Answer. The tribulation will drive the roots of your joy down into the unshakable, blood-bought hope of Jesus. That's where it'll go. If it doesn't go there, it won't go anywhere. There won't be joy. If joy if joy is not driven down, if the roots of joy are not driven down into the blood-bought hope that Jesus died to give us, you will lose it. You will lose joy in tribulation. So go there. Fourth question, last question. How are you going to hope in Jesus? If love flows through endurance and endurance is sustained by joy and joy is rooted in hope, how are you going to hope? You're a sinner. Sexual temptation is on you all the time. To distract you and make you worldly and carnal, unspiritual. All kinds of covetousness for other people's looks. Clothing, house. Pressures of every kind in this world to squeeze you into its mold and to make you indifferent to spiritual things. How are you going to hope in God? How's he going to be your treasure? How will you get up every morning and feel Christ is my treasure more than anything? How are you going to do that? Answer, you're going to pray. Isn't it amazing? I mean, if love flows from endurance and endurance flows from joy and joy flows from hope and hope is based on prayer, Ephesians 1, 15 to 23 Prayer is at the bottom of everything in the Christian life. If you minimize your life of prayer, you minimize everything in the Christian life. It's all connected to prayer. It's not like prayer is like you've got columns in the Christian life. You've got a faith column and a hope column and a joy column and a family column. And then, and then you've got a prayer column. Wrong. You got columns and then you got a prayer column like this underneath all of them. And if it goes, everything goes down. And so I'm I'm pleading with you to pray like this. Oh, God, awaken and sustain my hope. Pray it every day. 
Grant me, O God, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of yourself so that I know you better than I know my spouse or my friend or my child. Grant that there would be an opening of the eyes of my heart so that when I come to the Bible or to a sermon that's saturated with the Bible, I would taste and see that the Lord is good. It wouldn't be just a head thing. I would find my arms, the arms of my heart, reaching out and embracing you and your truth and your promises. Pray that, pray that, and then pray. And, oh God, out of this solid, blood-bought hope that I'm now seeing, would you cause joy to rise up in tribulation and by that joy give me endurance so that I can endure my cross and help me to love with that endurance the way Jesus loves so that the world will see and give glory to you. It's prayer week. We pray every morning. Every morning we'll be praying down here, downtown, and one of them up north. Noon as well. Friday night, 7.30 we get here. We play together. We eat the Lord's Supper together. And at midnight, we pray for five hours. If you've never been to an all-night prayer meeting, I promise you it's possible. It really is. You could come and find out how. For 25 years, we have begun the new year with a night of prayer. I am eager to watch the videos in heaven of how many thousands of events every year were answers to those nighttime prayers. I'm eager to find out. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our financial needs at this church right now are very great. I think Sherard said $480,000 just to meet the expenses. And this is the last Sunday of the year. But our spiritual needs are greater. And so I pray that this week of prayer you would set this church to praying as we have never prayed before. For our own souls, for our church, for our families, for unbelievers, for our nation, for the nations of the world. Oh, that we might be a people constant in prayer. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen.